Welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Damien Pizzanti. And I'm Katie Gillespie. So as promised, we were going to bring you guys a special edition of the podcast. And special hey, episode. this is that special episode because state level politics is somewhat of a dumpster fire right now. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been a lot of weird developments in the last couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah, there for sure have been. Um, so, God, where should we even begin? Let's talk about the end of the... And it's not even the end of the special session no. because they're still working. It was the end of the no. operating budget portion of the special session. Yes. So about a week and a half ago, the state legislator finally adopted a uh, a state budget, mm-hmm. narrowly avoiding a state shutdown. Like literally a midnight hour uh, bill sign. Not completely literally, but damn near a like midnight hour. Like 50 minutes to midnight. Like, yeah. an ele- like talk about the 11th hour yeah. literally happened in the 11th hour. So, I mean, by the skin of their teeth, avoided a partial government shutdown that, um, you know, basically kept things rolling but barely just to eke out this budget that is uh how do you even want to describe this because like people are depending on your political views you either love the way that the uh the the new levy system is going to work out for school districts or you're really frustrated about it i mean it's just it's yeah kind of so let's bag. so let's talk about schools so the right. the the significant so the structure of this podcast, um, Damien and I are going to talk about the budget. We're going to talk about the big picture things that happened yep. in the budget. Um, we're bringing on Ann, uh, Senator Ann Rivers, who's going to tell us a little bit more about what happened up in Olympia, how things went. She's going to give us her perspective. Yep. She was For part the of the budget crafting process. So Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, also should clarify that I've been working on a pretty big uh, story the last couple of days. And so you're not going to hear my voice on this show in like really the meat of the issues during the the Ann Rivers interview. Jake Thomas actually sat in and uh, sat in, took care of business for that one. Yeah, and I interviewed her as well. So um, because because McCleary was the big. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in that budget. There's still a ton of stuff outstanding. But that was the big hang up this year. I mean, yeah, that was the that's been the thing that's been hanging up the budget the last two sessions in a row. Oh, absolutely, McCleary funding. Right. So now. (laughs) <laughs> at least for the next two, at least for the next two years, we have the state has a plan for how they're going to pay for higher education. And I want to ask you, well, Katie, maybe not even that long, because don't forget, they are going back, you know, in six months. So Fair uh, they may they may decide, oh, crap, we messed up. Let's make some changes. I feel like one really important thing we should get out of the way very quickly is I'm seeing a lot of mixed messages out there that uh People who really like this new budget or this new uh, taxing structure for the uh, for funding um, funding education in the state, the people that like it are saying that this meets McCleary. And I just want to be clear that it's up to the state or it's up to the state Supreme Court whether this meets the McCleary decision completely or not. Right. It's yeah. not like we know for sure that this is all right. We're done. And we can exactly. Move on. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about about the background. If you're not familiar with the McCleary decision back in 2012, uh, responding to a lawsuit, the state Supreme Court ruled that the state was failing to meet its constitutional obligation to fully fund basic education. What that essentially means is that local school districts were using too much of their local levy dollars. So the the levies that you pay that you vote for or don't vote for um every, go into your property taxes you go into your property taxes that the that too much of a portion to pay for things like teachers getting paid curriculum you know kind of these basic buying things, books buying books yeah curriculums these basic things was 
being taken out of local dollars as, as opposed to state dollars, mm-hmm. which is where they really should be coming yeah, from. Yeah, because that's the, the basic education, right? Exactly. Levies were originally intended for like extra special things that the schools want to do, which might mean like extracurriculars, maybe a new building. No, bonds Not, go. No, okay. levies don't have anything to do with buildings. Good. So bonds are built. If you mm-hmm. vote for a levy, you're voting for the stuff your kids are doing in the building. Extra if you're voting for projects. bonds, you're voting for the building. Right. So, um, Okay. So the uh, so the legislator had to get had to get it done this year. This year was their deadline to mm-hmm. get a decision made that was going to f- change the funding or to fully fund basic education. Well, and let's keep in mind that the legislature was being fined what like ten thousand dollars a day, hundred thousand dollars a day, yeah, for not meeting this decision already. They were in contempt of court. Right, right, yeah. The legislator was in contempt of court for not getting this thing figured out. So, um, so essentially, what this budget does is it institutes what's called known as a levy swap so what that means is that the if so if you look at your property tax bill you'll see in clark county that the state section of your property tax levy is a dollar 98 um for for 2017 what's going to happen is in 2018 that's going to go up to 270 in 2000 or up to 270 um in 2019 uh you're going to see a levy your local levies drop so battleground for example this year charges it's it charges 366 or it's not up to the the school district but um the levy in battleground is three dollars and 66 cents per thousand dollars in assessed value of your home so that amount will be will be first of all limited what you can use it for it's not going to be a maintenance and operations levy anymore it's going to be an enrichment levy that goes to what you were describing which are those kind of extra things extracurriculars if you want to add an extra hour to your school day if mm-hmm. it's those types of things those kinds of special sort of projects right um the the maintenance or the enrichment levies will be capped at a dollar fifty per thousand so you're going to see your local levy rate drop by as much if not more than half Mm -hmm. um but but your state levy rate is going up so what which i mean it's a levy swap, right? It's a levy swap, right. Yeah. So um, so what conservative lawmakers who have really championed this effort are yeah, saying... Yeah, this has been a Republican idea. This is a Republican like idea. One. Yeah. What you see in budget uh, details, budget documents provided by the state is that in rural areas, you're going to see your property taxes go down because those districts tend to heavily rely on um, very high local levy rates to provide for their schools. It's the idea mm-hmm. of a property rich versus a property poor district right Mm -hmm. so if you've got a property poor district that doesn't have much in the way of industry doesn't have much in the way of business is just some homes with lower property values they're going to be charging per thousand more Mm -hmm. for those home for those taxpayers as a function of the fact that they're trying to meet a levy amount and what's ironic about that is even if they're charging more to those homeowners uh just because there are or property owners what have you there because there are fewer of them the there's less money going to these kids right right so um where an area like puget sound for example the levy rate is extremely low yeah, um, there's a lot of people paying into it your home values are really high yeah if you've got a multi-million dollar home in the puget sound or if you're the port of seattle or mm. if you're microsoft you know if you have if you have significant property value the taxes that you pay 
per thousand are going to be less than if you're living in an $80,000 home in the middle of central Washington. So the kids in your neighborhood are going to get a lot of benefits that kids living in... um, I don't know, name your small town, living in Stevensville or um, Underwood are going to get. Right, right, exactly. Anyway. So um, so we got this big swap coming in. So we got this big swap coming in. Um, the the information that's been provided by the legislator, there, I had a story that came out this week. There's some confusion, and the Department of Revenue, I mean, who knows, by the time this podcast comes out, we may even have some further clarification, but the information that's currently been provided by the state indicates that most Clark County's Clark County residents will see a property tax increase in the amount of um, a few hundred dollars, a couple hundred dollars. Um, mm-hmm. But what what lawmakers are saying is that the calculations that were used, because there are changes being made to the the funding formula, are actually actually exaggerated. If that makes sense. So the yeah. amount of um, so if if for example. Uh, an evergreen public schools homeowner in a medium priced home valued at two thousand forty four thousand could see taxes increase by two hundred and ten dollars, according to the office or according to. Oh, in 2018, according to the Office of Public Research, once that levy swap goes into effect in 2019, they're expected to drop down up about one hundred dollars less than they would under current policy. Ever- evergreen is a pretty property poor district right, right? exactly yeah. so because it's mostly housing suburbs etc when we were talking about this the other day in the newsroom didn't you tell me that uh, was it Van- the vancouver school district they should expect to see people living in that district or owning property in that district should expect to see their tax bill increase like well, is that maybe. still the that thought, might be or? that might be the case um so frank chop the uh, uh house speaker from seattle was quoted in the seattle times last week as saying um that the the amount of money that the Office of Public Research had um, had shown Seattle homeowners were going to see increased on their tax bill is actually significantly less because of local levy dollars that are scheduled to be phased out. So we have this this levy cliff coming, which is a whole separate subject. But the way mm-hmm. that levies, the way that, that um, the amount of money from local levies that local districts can collect is going to go down after 2018. Uh So, um, so there's some changes coming, some taxes that are essentially going to sunset. And rivers said the same thing that the numbers are based. These numbers of tax increases are based on a quote, worst case scenario. Not all districts are necessarily going to take their full dollar 50 levy amount, especially because they are so limited to um, what kinds of things you can use those, those dollar amounts for right i mean I at the end we have to really take this at a grain of salt right now because there's just still so much uncertainty with this well and at the end of the day i mean yes it's based in math it's based in formulas but but i just think trying to figure out your property taxes in some ways is kind of a fool's errand i mean even if the state even if the the county for example i know there was a lot of hullabaloo after the county voted to raise property taxes by the one percent allowed but i mean if you get Pete van ortwick the county assessor on the phone he'll say he'll tell you you know for some people they may see their taxes go down like even though the levy it's it's so weird to wrap your head around i mean even though the it's like the one percent goes up but because like 
property values are going up in an area, like the collective amount that everybody pays is a smaller than it was before. Well, and and don't forget, it's not that, that well. it's not that taxes are going up one percent for people. No. It's that the overall amount of money that a taxing agency can collect goes up by one percent. So I think a lo- another thing that's really important to talk about that's happening. I mean, are you done? Yeah, okay. yeah. Those those are the big those are the big okay. takeaways. Um, like I said, we're going to see some um, Department of Revenue uh, mm-hmm. numbers hopefully coming out this week. Um, the the other thing worth mentioning is that this is an additional as a function of this levy swap, we're going to see an additional five point six billion dollars that are being pushed into the state education system over four years. Over the next four years, yes. Yeah. So, so the big question is though is does that meet this? Is the Supreme Court going to be satisfied? We don't know until they say. And the legislator has until the end of the month. To submit a essentially a report saying we met the McCleary decision, mm-hmm. we met the requirements of the McCleary decision. Here's why. Here's how that's all going to work. The uh, the original litigators on the McCleary case, um, Amon has has come out and said it doesn't even come close to meeting McCleary. So mm-hmm. it'll be up to the court to decide, really. So yeah. So I'm, so now, sort of where we're at on the state level of things, we've got an operating budget. We have a plan for how we're going to fund education, um, whether the Supreme Court is satisfied or not is up to them. But the other thing that is happening still is that we don't have a capital budget. Right. And that's the budget that the state uses to build things and then provides grants to local local governments to build or improve things or what have you. And that is being held up right now really hard because um, – Everybody, well, not everybody, but um, rural lawmakers are really, really concerned about getting some resolution to um, this this issue that was brought up by the Supreme Court. Um, Hearst decision, right? Yeah, the Hearst decision. So in a nutshell, what that means is that um, it, was, it was a Supreme Court case. The court found that in that case, the state failed to properly consider the effects groundwater pumping from wells would have on uh, the rights holders to surface water. So now, under what under what? So is this a function of the Growth Management Act that this? So no, this is. Um, or is it just something different entirely? Uh, I I don't know enough to say if it actually how this ties into the Growth Management okay. Act or not. But what the concern is is that. So you'd have to suddenly do, before you could pump a well, you would have to prove this doesn't hurt senior right holders or other water right holders in your area. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You digging a you sucking water out of the ground isn't going to take water out of my creek that I have rights to extract from. Right. So people say that this effectively shuts down, you know, development in rural areas. And right. So groups like FutureWise are all about it, right? Totally. It's a mixed bag because, you know, on one hand, it's like surface, like water rights are a huge, huge, uh, huge issue. Can't build a home if you can't get water. Well, not only that, but it's like if you're if you have senior water rights, then you're supposed to be the first person in line to get water and everybody else falls below you. But if you're some guy with a well and you're like sucking it all out of the ground and it drops the water level to the point where nobody can they like they shut down a waterway. Um, during like a drought or something, suddenly you are affecting these other people who technically are supposed to be in front of you. I'm getting a lot of this information. Um, I'm looking at a story right now that was just published, um, like it looks like earlier today, early this morning from the Columbia Basin Herald. And in that story, they have uh, a quote in here from Senator Junie 
uh, Warnick from Moses Lake, and she says the capital budget is contingent on the passage of a bill that relates to the state Supreme Court's Hearst decision. This is important for rural areas of the state who want wells for domestic use. So is the goal to overturn, uh, try to overturn the state Supreme Court decision? Like, I don't get, I don't get what, if the state Supreme Court has well, made a ruling. Well, they can overturn it, but right. like some, if not, if, if not to overturn it to... Well, if not over- overturn it, basically to overturn it, like they have to clearly the Supreme Court found a hole in the the, the state laws about this issue. And then these these lawmakers wanted addressed. Basically, it sounds like they want something that'll say like um, something that will allow development. Yeah. So here is free up some development in the rural area. Totally. Um, so uh, again, according to the story, uh, that prior to the court decision, wells drilled in rural areas for domestic or agricultural use were exempt from state permitting rules. But yeah, one way or another that they, they want this issue addressed so that people can continue, can, can continue drilling in areas where they're not hooked up to like some sort of like, uh, city or county water infrastructure system. And it's all apparently contingent on this bill, SB uh, 5239. And that's been, you know, for for rural folks, this is obviously a very big issue because well water is the only place you're getting your water from. Right, right. You know, Uh, whether or not this will happen, we will see. But again, she's quoted in here as saying um, that I don't think the House believed we meant it, but they do now. So clearly the Senate Republicans who control the Senate are not budging on this until something gets done. So and we should be clear, if a capital budget is not approved, that doesn't that doesn't end current projects, but it prevents new projects from happening. So So essentially, if they already approved some projects from like the previous budget, those will continue to be funded as needed. But any new proposals that were on the table for this budget aren't going to happen. So here's some examples of things that are going to be happening in Clark County. So there's a um, $167,000 in grants for CMAR. Um, Clark College is hoping to get work started on a $5.2 million planning phase of its of its new campus up at Bashima Farms in mm-hmm. Ridgefield. Uh, mm-hmm. There's uh, very often in the capital budget, uh, just generally speaking, statewide, um, the like the state parks department will use money from the capital budget to acquire new lands, new like sensitive areas, or potentially new recreational areas mm-hmm. to preserve those for recreational uses. Yeah, I- this is really like this touches. This this will touch every county and many, many cities within the state and even yeah. a lot of like social organizations that were hoping for matching grants out of the capital budget. Well, and this is and this is a lot of the kind of the fun stuff, right? This is the stuff totally. that if I'm a lawmaker and I want to go, you know, it's the off season and I want to go to a ribbon cutting and make a showing and say I fought for funding for this project. Totally. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of politics at stake in the capital budget so yeah i mean this is you know honestly aside from taxes this is one area where communities like feel government government directly is the money yeah that this literally see it the, the stem building at clark college for example you know that's a massive building if you drive down fourth plane you see it every day that is government at work so totally so you know I I can't wait to see what happens with the capital budget. It may or may not get passed. Yeah, it's, we'll see. Again, this all comes down to politics. Right, totally. But uh, we could go on and on, although we should probably turn to the conversation you guys had. Yeah, with. let's turn to um, Ann Rivers, and then we're going to have a special edition of Ashley's Corner, and then Damien and I will be back. All right, so we're sitting down with uh, Senator Ann Rivers. Um, she's going to talk to us about this uh, this year's crazy budget session. <laughs> 
<laughs> was a it was a busy few months for sure for you guys. It was insanity. <laughs> God, how long were you guys in session for? Like seven we're still months? in. Session. I mean, you're still in session, but how long were you on the operating so, side of things? So uh, January thirteenth, we started, and we're still in session today. So we're in our uh, third special session. Wow. Um, and narrowly avoided a state shutdown with the adoption of... Yeah, I, the state shutdown was a politically manufactured thing. Um, I, we were never close to shutdown. Uh, it is in... If we look at this from a purely political perspective, Republicans would be happy to walk away with the maintenance level from the prior year in any given legislative session. Mm -hmm. um, Democrats have promised their constituency the moon, and so it is essential for them to drag it out as far as possible so that they can say we absolutely tried to get you the moon but we couldn't get there when we heard all the talk about oh shut down shut down none of us ever really believed we were even close we knew that we would come to an agreement you know without threat of a shutdown so so i wanted to ask about the uh the the funding mechanism that that funds the mccleary decision mm -hmm. um and it's it's essentially a levy swap correct a levy swap and we had extraordinary revenue from marijuana sales and other um, REITs and other things that are happening in the state because our economy is on the uptick. So we had incredible growth of revenue in the state. So we took some of that incredible revenue growth and then we paired that with, uh, with a levy swap where we left a certain amount of capacity for the locals to meet their local cultural desires desires for what they wanted their educational system to look like. Um, so for example, Battleground FFA is huge. We want them to still be able to fund that at a level that they want to fund that at. Mm -hmm. um, but we took away all of the basic ed function from them. So the basic education salaries for teachers and, and things that would be associated with basic education. So. Um, yeah, so. there's even like a language change here, right? We're going to gain away from calling them maintenance and operations levies and then enrichment levies is what right. they're Right, so they're, right? now they're enrichment levies, which means that they can only be used to enrich student educational outcomes. So those sort of extras, essentially. Right, exactly. Okay. And, and, those... it, and it just really depends on what each community thinks is most important. Okay. And those are going to be capped at a dollar fifty beginning in two thousand nineteen, mm -hmm. and then the state levy increasing by about eighty cents to two seventy. So right. what we're looking at, right? Okay. But it's important to note that while the levies could increase to a dollar fifty, the reality is that the people of those districts have to vote for those levies to increase to a dollar fifty. So when we did all of our calculation. We did it on a dollar fifty because that's the maximum that it could go to. But there are places in our region where the people will never allow it to go to a dollar fifty, and so and we can see that because of traditional voting patterns and how much the people have been willing to sustain. So um, on that on that amount that remains local, it will be determined by how much the locals want to do. But for like, say, a, a district like Battleground, for sake of example, again, um, where their levy rate is 366 per per thousand, yeah, so you're going to see a tr pretty tremendous decrease in their right. levy rate, when local we, levy rate. Yes. When we 
um, as we we needed a year to implement. So what they'll see for the first year is an uptick, but then after that, then they're going to see significant downticks. But we needed to um, because we couldn't just flip a switch and say, okay, it's this way now. Uh, uh, in order to make the accounting work, we had to maintain the status quo for one year. And then uh, in the second year, then that's when people in Battleground will see um, significant drops in their taxes. So I want to ask about that because the, the Office of Public Research, I... Uh I'm I'm still getting some ambiguity on whether or not we're going to see tax increases or tax decreases for most Clark County families. So, um, for example, uh, Evergreen Public Schools levy is is indicated that they're going to see that increase, like you described, to a $210 increase and then down $100 from current and then eventually narrowing out to zero to no change. Um, and uh, for Camus, an increase of $330 and then $100, $192.70. So, so we do see these increases from this year's baseline, but I, my understanding is that there's maybe some problems with these numbers. Right, because again, OPR is basing it on the maximum amount that can be levied. And again, not all these communities are going to levy the maximum amount of that local share. They don't right now. They're not levying that on themselves right now. But when we were running the numbers, we thought it would be best to prepare sort of a worst case scenario for the taxpayers. Um, but, But the chances of a community doing that kind of levy on themselves. I mean, when you have communities like Battleground who fail multiple levies in a row, we just don't have any reason to believe that they'll go the full dollar fifty. And candidly, now that we've taken on the liability for all of basic ed, it's really not necessary for them to go the full dollar fifty. But even at that dollar fifty, say like Hawkinson, which has had a very rich program, um, they will see a decrease because they um, because they were picking so much of the cost of basic education up, and as were many of our districts. So, okay, but it's all predicated on the dollar fifty is sort of the worst case scenario, okay. and so I think what communities have to do is decide, um, you know, for enrichment purposes if they really want to. It go all the way up to a dollar fifty, or if they think that the existing funding that they're seeing is adequate enough. Talk to us a little bit about the the process, and you know, we we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but the the sort of last minute ness of everything. And... So, in terms of McCleary, it was important since it was going to be like fifty three percent of the overall budget. It was really important that we got this piece right. So we started working on this um, in earnest probably three or four years ago, but the difference was that we didn't have buy-in from our leadership. So there was a bipartisan group of senators who got together and um, we came up with what we thought could be a solution. But our leadership was at that point, uh, we didn't have buy-in. And we didn't have buy-in candidly from the rest of our caucus either. And so uh, we shelved the work that we had done 
and then when um, when the desire seemed to be more that we needed to do something as more and more was coming to light about the inequities in our system it's not just about what the Supreme Court says for, for my part uh, the Supreme Court has really set us up for a constitutional crisis because they're legislating, um, whereas the the legislate I mean they're delegating the um, the purse. They're right? setting policy. They're setting policy. Yeah. They're they're determining how we have to spend money. Clearly not outlined for them in the Constitution, um, but what they did do was they looked at existing law that we had passed and said. According to your own laws, you are not following what you said you were going to do. It is in their purview to interpret law. And uh, and in that regard, they were correct. This whole thing with $100,000 a day, um, I disagree with that. And I do believe that it is not their role to tell us how to spend money. I believe it is their role to interpret existing law which, as I said before, they did. And candidly, uh, they had us dead, dead to rights on that. Um, but so what we did was we went back through. Um, we started off in a very bipartisan way. Um, there were some very uh, there were some tense moments, but we had to do some trust building and um, and talk about what each of the priorities were. And uh, so we move forward from there. It was in terms of the education negotiation piece, we started in, I don't know, I think maybe late March or so, though the time's kind of blurring for me <laughs> a little bit. Um, and then we continued to write up until a week and a half before we ultimately took the vote but it took that long for staff to draft the legislation and also um, to um, to get everything get our numbers squared away make sure that we were correct uh, and then we had to present it to our caucuses and uh, and get buy-in there so it was, as I stipulated in my floor speech, not a perfect bill, but the heavy lift that we completed is notable and it's significant. And we attempted to look at uh, the multitude of communities that we have within our school community, our highly capable kids, our special ed kids, our um um, our career and technical ed kids. We do, I mean, we've got all of these communities within communities, and it was really important to make sure that we had a well-rounded system that was meeting the needs of all of those students, and so that was really our charge, our task. And I feel like we performed well within the group that we had there to come up with something that can work for the students of our state. So um, then it, uh, taking extrapolating then to the larger discussion, um, the main budget writers were in the education budget discussion. So John Braun, Chris Litton, um, Pat Sullivan, 
um, and David Taylor in the House Republicans. So they, so it was like a little subsection of what they were doing. So we felt like it was really important for them to be included in that because whatever we did in that room was going to impact the larger budget. So once we had that piece done, then they were free to move on and to um, get the rest of it hammered out. But they were still talking about other pieces of it while they, so. I would leave and go home, and they would stay and talk about other pieces of the budget. So um, I was just visiting with another, a colleague of mine this morning about we have got to figure out a way to get this done earlier and and uh, without, um, for the purpose of preventing all this talk of, um, you know, shut down and, and the scoring of political points. And, you know, I just think that we have to, I think that we have a responsibility to to redevelop credibility um, instead of having all of the political talking points and, you know, this person's bad and that person's bad or this ideology is doing this and that. I I'm tired of it. Uh, I've always said I'm working really hard to keep this Washington from becoming the other Washington. Mm. And uh, so that was our charge, our task. I feel like we performed. I'm sure that you'll find no shortage of people on either side um, who would be willing to to complain and to, to poke holes in whatever we did. But the reality is I think when you're in the arena, um, you got to do the best that you can do, and I feel like we did. Kind of to go back, I know there's there's a lot of other things in the budget to discuss, but um, I just wanted to address some of the, the criticism of the taxing structure that was uh, brought up for the McCleary decision, um, that, that it this levy swap was a reg- kind of a regressive way to approach the funding of McCleary. Can you comment on that, and if you agree with that? Or? Oh, I absolutely disagree. Um, if you look, Seattle has typically had a very, very, very low levy rate, while, as you rightly point out, um, Battleground has been, you know, paying lots more but getting lots less. So basically what we did was we shifted that. Um, you know, if you look at the capital gain scheme of uh, where they said, oh, the, only the rich will pay for that. Basically, the only people who are going to see a, a significant increase are those who live in million-dollar homes in the Puget Sound area. They're going to see the largest increase. So um, this is actually quite a progressive scheme to pay for education. Um, and uh, I... I was, I had heard somebody say this is so regressive, but people have skin in the game. Those who have senior citizen exemption have the same senior exemption under this plan as well. So, or or federal poverty, same same exemptions exist. Okay. And do you think this is gonna when it goes to the Supreme Court? Do you think they're gonna say this fully, fully inadequately responds to McClary? I believe that it will. 
So, uh, so you mentioned how the negotiations have kind of fallen apart, or some aspects of with the governor's veto and what's going on with Hearst. Do do you think that in the future, do you think that it's going to be harder to have negotiations in future sessions? Do you think this is going to be the new normal where we get a budget at the last minute? Well, as I pointed out earlier, if you keep in mind the political ideologies. Um, and you look at long the long session, the first um, the first part of the biennium. It seems it's always the standard course that they go right up to the deadline because one side has to prove to their base that they took it to the limit to get as much as they could get. Um, and I think that you're always going to see that. But candidly, in the second part of the biennium, the reason it always gets out on time is because it's election time and people can't fundraise and the house is up every two years. So um, I was brainstorming with a colleague of mine today about how do we stop this from happening. I think we have to look at um, maybe moving the capital budget to the off year um, so that both aren't being done at the same time. That might be a solution. But the other piece is maybe what we do is we say to the legislators, you don't get any per diem or pay if you go into extra innings. And so then those people can put pressure on their leadership to say, I'm not doing this. Um, another thing that we could do is have hard and fast deadlines. There are deadlines right now in the legislature for, you know, last bit, last, um, the House of Origin cutoff. Maybe we use those um, to say if the budget isn't over, we just revert to the last budget. Mm -hmm. um, those kinds of things. There's got to be a way that we do this, that we get out. Because, look, um, people say, oh, you know, they're just doing this for per diem. And that makes me laugh because there's not enough money in the world that makes me want to um, cancel my family trips or prevents me from getting to work or doing these other things. And so... Um, I just, uh, I just um, think that we have to do things differently and uh, restore that credibility that we need so desperately so that people know that it's not just, you know, fun and games, that we're really doing the work of the people and then we're getting out of Olympia. It's not fun and games in Olympia. So, I know, right? <laughs> uh, so I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about how the Oregon uh, legislature, they pass their, their transportation package, mm -hmm. and that includes asking for federal authority for tolls on the interstate bridges. Uh, what, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Can, can Washington State do anything about that? So I'm going to be interested to see if I'm going to be interested to see what the feds say about that, since it is, you know, a two state region that would be impacted. I'm going to and and since there would be no um, there would be no benefit to the bridges proper. It's for the corridor. Uh, I'm going to be interested to see if the feds go along with that program or not. Um, but I haven't had any conversation with my colleagues in Oregon to find out the thinking there or uh, ways that we can get that addressed. Uh, I've had constituents write in and say, you have to pass a bill about this, but unfortunately, uh, not within our purview. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some other things that we might be able to do that we could that we could end up um, expressing our concern to the feds. Uh, speaking of bridges, so the Interstate 5 replacement bridge uh, bill passed. What's mm -hmm. next? What's going to happen as soon as 
the legislature's out. What's what's going to happen? So we're reaching out. The study that we required in the bill has already begun. So they're putting together all the data so that we know what pieces might need to be redone or what data is going to end up being good that we won't have to repeat so we won't have to spend more money. Um, but we've also uh, let the feds know of our progress so that we don't have to pay back that um, I think it was 92 million that uh, we used a federal dollars to to get complete the work that was done last time. Um, but also, we're now reaching out to our colleagues in Oregon to uh, begin the discussion in earnest. And I believe that business groups and labor groups alike are also reaching out to legislators over there to say, okay, let's let's all get together and start discussing what some options are for, for this corridor. So um, that's happening. And so I, I anticipate when it when the dust settles from session, and I would think it'd probably be, um, you know, people will need a little bit of a break. Probably be maybe second week in August or so that we are actually, you know, convening some meetings with our colleagues over there to talk about where we're at, where we need to be, and how we're going to get there. So what's going to be the next milestone on that? Will there be a report issued or some sort oh, of yeah, yeah, yeah. vote or, or any? <clears throat> so we, I, I think it's December of 2017, the report from WashDOT about the permits and the the supporting data will be submitted to the legislature. Okay. And uh, that will, uh, and I've been meeting with WashDOT uh, as well to talk about um, their progress on that report. So... It, that that is a milestone but I think a lot of it is just relationship uh, relationship work with Oregon and um, figuring out the the path forward together when do you have any estimates or any idea of when the bridge might be replaced so there I, might be some serious <laughs> upgrades to it when that might be all said and done so I told Lou Brancaccio that I figured I thought that we could get it done maybe five years from the end of session and so we'll see how how successful we are, but I mean, I think it's it's about the will, um, and and this is not to discount the need for additional bridges in any way, shape, or form. I think that I've pushed for a regional transportation solution from day one, where we had, um, you know, a multitude of crossings similar to what Oregon has, what eleven or thirteen bridges, something. So. Um, but in order to even have that discussion, we have to uh, move forward on this and get some work done. And, you know, we could send a package to the people of our region that would be um, the either um, an additional crossing at the I-5 location. And who knows what that would look like? Maybe a tunnel, maybe, you know, who knows? Um, along with something uh something at the east side or i think the west side because of the actions of governor barbara roberts 22 or 23 years ago now um where we were we had a bridge we had a project and at the 11th hour she um she vetoed it and designated all the land there as environmentally sensitive so I think that that over there, just with the acquisition of land and everything, is going to be very difficult. Though my, it, I would love to have a west side crossing. I just don't see 
um, with the mechanics of it all, how we get there. But I do think that we need a multitude of crossings. There's no, you know, part of the solution for for the I-5 corridor is to diffuse the traffic off of the corridor. Um, so I think that we have to keep our mind open. We need somebody looking at additional crossings all the time, not just a group of business people who um, think this is a good idea, so that's what they go with. I think that we need people who are bridge professionals or who are, I shouldn't even say bridge, I mean crossing professionals, um, who are looking at options in a multitude of places and proceeding um, to position us. If we had done this, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we wouldn't be in the pickle that we're in today. We can't undo any of that. All we can do is say, moving forward, this is what we have to do. So what remains to be done? What's keeping you from getting out of Olympia? So uh, the thing preventing us from signing dying is the capital budget. Um, in the operating budget, there were several deals struck to uh, that were all agreements about getting everything done. When some of the bills hit the governor's desk, um, the budget document was one of them, and then there was a trailer bill, there were some very key items that were vetoed. Uh, one of them was uh, a piece that was my personal piece about um, about trying to get the cost of pharmaceuticals under control. And uh, we had a half billion dollar bill for our Medicaid pharmaceuticals last year. It didn't really get much coverage in the newspaper, but it's significant. A half billion dollars is a lot of money. Um, the, the larger question is, though, that this was only in our Medicaid population, which tells us that in our private market, our taxpayers are also enduring significant pharmaceutical costs. We need to get an understanding of that. The governor vetoed a key piece that would have allowed us to get those costs under control for that Medicaid population and also for us to be able to deconstruct why costs in the private market are um, private commercial. Uh, that was part of the operating budget or was part of a separate the bill? No, to it was get part of the operating budget that he vetoed. Um, so it was a great favor for, you know, it was a great favor that he did for some major companies. In fact, they're all Fortune top 20 companies. Um, but uh, I felt a real stab in the heart to what we're trying to do with getting these costs under control. Uh, and then the second piece, of course, was the manufacturing um, the manufacturing tax cut that when we were forced to take that Boeing vote by the very same governor, uh, we a lot of us felt really uh, kind of sick to our stomachs that we're giving Boeing this cherry deal when we've got these small businesses who are really struggling um, and we can't give them the same deal. Not only that, but um, if you've heard me speak at all, you know that I've said part of the solution to our I-5 congestion is keep keeping jobs on this side of the river so people don't have to use that bridge. Uh, so then we strike at the heart of welcoming small businesses that are manufacturers to our area. Um, so so that being struck, these were a couple of the, the vetoes that were um, agreed to 
and supported. Were they agreed to by the by the governor. What, were you surprised that the governor vetoed the, these parts of the I was, budget? I was extraordinarily surprised. I was absolutely surprised that the governor, because we, when you make a deal like that and everybody shakes and says, yeah, we're good to go, the last thing you expect is for one person to go, oh, my fingers were crossed, or oh, just kidding about that one. Had the governor indicated previously that he was going to sign the, the budget in its entirety? The, yep, through staff, we we um, worked it all the way around, and everyone agreed that this is the way it's going to be. So, um, so that uh, led to um, the governor making some snarky comments about hurt feelings, but it's not really about hurt feelings. It's about bargaining in good faith. And it's about, um, he bargained completely unsustainable, um, unsustainable contracts, CBAs, collective bargaining agreements, uh, to the tune of, I don't know what, $1.8 billion or something, but not sustainable. And we made sure that we covered his backside on that, right? So then we get this news that he's decided that this deal isn't good enough or that he really wants his cap and trade tax or his capital gains or whatever it is. Um, so it's just really disconcerting. When you are bargaining in good faith, um, it's really important to maintain that trust. Otherwise, you come in with the, into the next session without any hope that what you're bargaining is actually going to be honored. Uh, and as you can imagine, that's problematic. It's like going to your landlord and saying, yeah, I'll take it for 1200 bucks a month. And then you are moving your stuff in and he goes, oh, by the way, it's actually $1,800 a month. And you're left going, what? How that you can't do that. So it's that kind of credibility and um, and importance. It's important to the negotiating process. So um, that being as it may, uh, there was another piece that was really important, and that was the Hearst decision that uh, that current under current law. Um, again, I feel the courts are overstepping their bounds. They've said it's about water rights. Uh, for people who have owned land and they've made major investments in land as their retirement only to find out that their land is worthless because they have no right to the water that goes along with right. the I mean, land. The decision basically said that counties are in charge of making sure that a, a new development, a house or something needs to have water to it. And so it makes it a lot harder to, to develop and roll land. It's right? very, yes, very expensive, but also gives veto rights to um, certain other populations. Uh, over the land. So if you're up in the Skagit Valley, for example, the um, there uh, an Indian tribe up there might determine the outcome of whether you have water or not. And as you can imagine, that would be really problematic to, to have all of this land and then not be re so reliant on others to give you permission to do what you'd like. So um, we had people working. I was not personally engaged in this. I had several other key um, areas that I was engaged in but others of my colleagues were really working on Hearst in earnest to get to an answer and then ultimately couldn't do it. We had said from day one, no Hearst, no capital budget. And I think that there was some idea that somehow we would back off of that. But we just, we were trying to figure out what was unclear about what we said. So we, again, um, negotiated in good faith and uh, it it was not uh, meant 
fruitfully met fruitfully and so I think the last thing would be the capital budget um, it's a little sad for me because our region did really well in the capital budget this year which was just such an um, it was so awesome to have a delegation working so cohesively and really working to meet the needs of our region um, but in the final analysis, we have to get the water rights issue squared away. And so in the absence of that agreement, we, we're left with no choice but to say clearly, you know, maybe a capital isn't in the in is, the cards for this year. Is the, is, is the Hearst decision, the lack of action on the Hearst decision by the legislature, is that what's holding up the capital yes. budget? Or is also the it's, vetoes from well, the Well, the vetoes, too? I mean, it's it's a package. Hearst was the holdup, but then when the vetoes occurred, then people were scratching their head and saying, how can this even be fair? This, is, this isn't even, how does this reflect good faith bargaining? So, um, you know, that's where it is today. I don't know that, I don't, since I'm not on any of the negotiating teams handling any of this, I just have no crystal ball on what's really going to happen. Okay. Um, well, Senator Rivers, thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, I know you're busy and uh, we appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right, so we've got a special edition of Ashley's Corner this weekend. So uh, give us a scoop, Ashley. What's going on in this uh, on this July weekend? A lot of wonderfully free events, actually. <laughs> That's what I like is free. <laughs> right, free outside, fun things to look at and meet people with um so it starts off really uh with harvest days up in battleground uh it's kind of their big annual community celebration it takes place friday and saturday friday night they kick it off with the uh harvest nights cruise car cruise in um so it starts around so we can say cruise right that's fine oh, yeah. <laughs> it is, we'll get to that it later. is a word in english um <laughs> But yeah, it's the Harvest Night uh, car cruise in. It's basically any car that's cool, that's um, classic, that's older than uh, 1978, that's been like customized or hot rodded or just fun night. Um, and so that starts around 6.30 p.m. on Main Street and Battleground. Um, this year they'll also have a uh, uh, burnout pit. So if people want to like do donuts, um, they can go do that. And then you just kind of watch cool cars in the in the. Um, evening air which is fun and then harvest days kicks off on saturday uh, with um, pancakes at the firehouse a big grand parade at uh, 10 a.m and then uh, there's all the carnivals there's a skateboarding bmx competition uh, near fairgrounds park and battleground um, they'll have concerts and entertainment and a talent show a geocoin um, scavenger hunt yeah and then of course uh, this saturday is also cruise the couve and and we need to talk about this because and and so it is they're keeping the name right so last i heard as i understand it the guy sent a cease and desist letter right yes to the city and to local businesses yeah to the city and all the downtown association businesses right saying like don't use this name because you're like harming our ability to market it elsewhere it's an interesting thing because it started as a very uh grassroots kind of idea of we use you know in the 60s and 70s uh any 
old timers from Vancouver can tell you of of cruising uh, around Clark County. Yeah, cruising uh, down Main Street. Yeah, as rambunctious teenagers in your cool cars. I mean, isn't that wasn't that done in like every? That was part yeah. of like American history exactly, for a while. Exactly. To cruise the drag. That's what that's what made the event such a big big success because everyone has those kind of fun memories and then they get to relive them now when they're older when they have you know they've restored all these great cars or they have something cool and they just want to show it off and they find a bunch of like-minded people and vancouver's main street is really well designed for it you got all the old buildings you got kind of the one-way street and people loop back on broadway like it's it's a well-designed idea that's a good spot for it exactly um so it was gonna happen regardless of whether it was officially officially organized organized or happening so the the local businesses kind of jumped in as a way to well it's happening whether we want to have it or not so we might as well make it a good time for people who come doesn't it seem like these people would have shown up and just done this thing anyways regardless if Mm -hmm. you would have put like an official stamp on it or not it's like it is an entity all all in of its own now yeah i mean a lot of people were already planning on being here it sounded like it was going to happen and then it just kind of raveled unraveled really close to the finish line and so a lot of other people scooped it up to make sure it could still happen and still be safe and still be fun Mm -hmm. for everyone um and so hopefully uh this will just be a tiny bump in the road pardon the pun that's right of 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 the great cruising in in vancouver totally a little pothole that maybe they just need to patch up yes yeah uh, and this is just Saturday, correct? Yeah, it, it's just Saturday. I think it's starting around 10 and it goes to about 10 p.m. So whenever you want to show up, although a lot of people show up really, really early, uh, stake out their uh, car watching spot on the sidewalk and just enjoy a day out. Um, they're also really encouraging people to bring canned food, which will be donated to Share Vancouver. So definitely bring some cans with you cool um and yeah enjoy the show anything else going on this weekend that's kind of a full weekend just those two oh there's so much more though um there is the uh rural heritage fair um which is (laughs) up in ridgefield at the uh sherman iron ranch which is kind of this interesting collection uh created by alan sherman over over the years Mm -hmm. he was his uh ranch was featured on american pickers a couple years back he just has a bunch of collections but uh rural heritage fair is uh, put on uh, by a local group who really enjoy um, old steam engines logging machines kind of that turn of the century um uh, power steam powered um, mechanical things they'll have blacksmith demonstrations they have a little pioneer village for kids where kids can learn how to like split logs and, and drive tractors and learn how, what shingles is like it's what shingles is like the disease or the roofing product hopefully the roofing product i don't know hopefully both <laughs> both shingles yeah. is serious make get vaccinated how to how to churn butter all that all that good stuff you when you originally started this i was like they should rebrand this as like a steampunk festival mm-hmm. and it would attract a totally different crowd yeah, suddenly there'd be a lot of baristas from Portland all over this exactly, thing. Exactly. <laughs> well, they still could go. Like they I'm, still should go. They still should go. And, and like the machines are, um, you know, they've been maintained. A lot of them still work. So you have like the big kind of um, logging horses, iron horses that would, you know, take the the logs apart and like strip them down. Cool. And, and they'll do a lot of different demonstrations and stuff and then the ranch itself just has a lot of interesting old items just kind of buried around 
that you get to go look at and stuff. And cool. it's it's a uh, Saturday and Sunday from nine to five. It's a uh, five dollars per car load to to get in, and it's a really cool place. Very different. Cool. Um, there is also just across the river this weekend is the Cathedral Park Jazz Festival. Cool. It is one of the um, biggest, oldest, and freest jazz festivals (laughs) west of the mississippi um and if you've ever been free it's super free it's great um if you've never been to cathedral park in portland north portland um it's named cathedral park because of the saint john's bridge that kind of spans it and the way they designed the I, i guess you would call it the the ground supports i don't know bridge terms but they're shaped in the way that um when you go into a grand cathedral it has that kind of big old arch and and it makes a very impressive sort of background way yeah cool and it's a beautiful it's right near the the willamette river and they put on they bring a lot of local jazz groups from portland to perform uh friday night is all about blues and r&b and soul and then saturday and sunday from like one to about eight in the evening it's all jazz so Grab a picnic blanket, make a uh, uh, carry-on lunch, and go enjoy some some good tunes in the sun. Cool. If you are in downtown Vancouver already for for cruise in the Cove, there is also fire in the park on Saturday. Yeah. From 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. What is fire in the park? <laughs> it is something the the Vancouver Firefighters uh, Association puts on to kind of both promote fire safety and for just people who love fire trucks and fire engines. You can go and look at a bunch and firefighters will be there doing demonstrations. There'll be a lot of kids activities. Like it's really good for little kids who love fire engines. I was going to say, this is like every eight-year-old boy's like yes. hot weekend. Yes. They'll, they'll let them try out some of the equipment, put on some of the jackets. Um, there's even like a, a teddy bear hospital so if you have like a ripped stuffed animal you can learn how to you know put bandages on it and stuff and and fire in the park is free although donations are always encouraged to help out uh with the local firefighters and that's in esther short park so you know swing by esther short park then swing up main street catch some cars don't we have a thing that happens where there's like fire breathers what like i thought there, there was like an event in downtown vancouver of like fire dancers like crazy hula hoopers of flames what? <laughs> that's what i thought this was uh i mean that would be cool but this is not what that is <laughs> it's the opposite anything else there's always more always 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 there was more. one thing that i think you forgot to mention that is surely near and dear and very important to a lot of people out in clark county that this Sunday, the new season of Game of Thrones premieres. Um, I am so freaking excited. My girlfriend and I are making some mead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. That's so cool. We're getting mead. We're going to cook up like a bunch of like medieval style like feast food. Wow. And we thought about like playing some drinking games. There's, there's Game of Thrones drinking games out there, but it seems like every one of them will just get you wasted, which mm. I don't really want to do on a Sunday night. But right. yeah, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of great things going on in town. But for at least one hour Sunday evening, I'm going to be watching TV. It's true. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Anytime. That is a wrap. Yeah, that's a show. Man, I hope you guys, uh, I feel like we probably made your brain swell a little bit with all those heavy, heady uh, politics discussions. But if you care, I bet you you're really going to like this show. The big takeaways, a operating budget was decided. We still don't know if it fully complies with McCleary. We will see, et cetera. That's been the nature of this whole legislative session is just one we'll big see. we will see. Totally. Uh, we're working on it. We're, we're hammering it out. Yeah. 
So, hey, thanks for tuning in, and I hope you guys like the show. Um, you might have even liked it a little bit more because I wasn't in that much of it. <laughs> Who knows? But um, you can catch us next time on uh, the podcast. I think you know where to find it. Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud. SoundCloud. SoundCloud's Columbia. a good one. Com. Columbia.com. Yep, all the places. Yeah, and if you want to reach out to us, um, you can reach out to the podcast where either Katie or myself will pick it up at podcast at Columbian.com. Or you can email us directly. We'll get it. Yeah, one way or another. Uh, stay in touch. Tell your friends to listen to us. And thanks for tuning in. Bye.